episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, out in Malibu and Silver Lake. Aloe is created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. And their mission was to create a rehab that treated addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. They have been treating addicts for decades and decades and decades of years if you put all of their experience together, and they have crazy experience in dealing with addiction as well as co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness, just in case you do have SMI. They also make sure that an addict is treated with respect and that a detox is as comfortable as it possibly can be which is great if you're kicking heroin or benzos or alcohol or anything. You want a nice and comfortable detox. They have amazing amenities. They have surfing. They have equine therapy. They have sweat lodge. They have sound bath meditation. I have heard from friends who loved aloe. They said it was an amazing experience. So if you're fucked and you're looking for a place to get help and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I totally recommend going to aloe. Attention cigarette smokers. There's a less harmful alternative available to you. According to two studies published by Public Health England and the U.S. National Academies of Sciences and Engineering, they found that vaping poses a small fraction of the risks of smoking, and switching to vapes may have substantial benefits over cigarettes. 
This is why so many cigarette smokers have made the switch to vaping, and their brand of choice is Twist E-Liquids. Twist is an American-owned company that makes its delicious e-liquids in Los Angeles, California. Twist has won several awards for creating mouth-watering flavors such as its best-selling lemonade, sweet treats, and dessert flavors. But Twist also produces a fine line of sweet tobacco, that's tobacco flavors as well. Try Twist e-liquids today, and you're going to get not 20, not 25, not 30, but 50% off. That's right. Half price off Twist e-liquids for all you vapors out there in the Dopey Nation. You use the code DOPEY30, that's D-O-P-E-Y 30, to save 50% off at daddysvapor.com. That is 50% off using the code DOPEY30 at daddysvapor.com. Tell your friends, try Twist today, and make the switch. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Evolution Accounting and Consulting, a full-service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, bookkeeping, payroll, and almost any other business need you might have. Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off your plate, you'll be freed up to focus on what you love to do. Perhaps more important than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now and knows the struggle as well as the success. Just use Dopey code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com. Don't forget the dash and don't forget to use the Dopey code to receive special discounts. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Sober Grid, the most popular sober mobile network out there. How does it work? Sober Grid is unlike any other addiction recovery solution. Sober Grid is a free app that connects you with other sober people. You are instantly connected to a global sober community in your neighborhood and around the globe. You can build strong sober support networks and inspire others. Sober Grid also offers affordable 24-7 certified peer coaches to assist individuals in their recovery. Their peer coaches are trained and certified to help you get sober and stay sober. What I see SoberGrid as is the best opportunity to connect with addicts all over the world. If you're on the road, if you're someplace you're not usually at, and you go on SoberGrid, you can find somebody that might need your support or might be able to give you support if you're struggling. Best of all, SoberGrid is totally free. Check them out at SoberGrid.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you, most importantly, by you guys, the dopes in the Dopey Nation through Patreon, and I've made a ton of, like, perks to be a Dopey patron, but the real reason that I've done any of it is because making Dopey is my favorite thing. I would love it to be a full-time thing. I would love for there to be more Dopey out there, so if you guys like listening to Dopey and you're not in Dopey Patreon, if you can find it in the kindness of your heart to kick down a couple bucks to Dopey Patreon, there would be more Dopey in the world. Thank you for everybody who kicks down. Thank you for everybody who listens. And that's it. That's my big Dopey Patreon plea. If you want gear, 
You go to www.dopeypodcast.com. We work with a printing company called SRO Printing out of uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Those are a couple addicts in recovery. We've got some amazing stuff. Go to the store, dopeypodcast.com. I have a few Oyve snapbacks and beanies left. Not Oyve beanies, dopey beanies left and dopey snapbacks left. We're doing, finally, we're going to do another shipping this week. We have stickers. Hit me up on Venmo at Dopey Podcast if you want anything. Enough with the ads. Here is the show. Hello, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. I am Dave. I am on Zoom and the phone with my very good friend, Ray. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Nice. Good. Nice to do the show, not at 9 o'clock at night. No, it's it's a, the earliest we've recorded Dopey on the Zoom ever. Yep. The sun is streaming through. Just to paint you guys a picture, Ray lives in a very swanky penthouse apartment on 14th street so high up in the building that he has a skylight that he's covered with some sort of white garbage bag that i see (laughs) i see strips of tape coming off of um and it looks it's it's pretty glorious that shit has to keep you up in the morning though doesn't it it's oh i wake up early i wake up when i live basically on the you know and i have a glass roof i have three giant skylights and when the sun comes up my apartment is lit up and it's not a penthouse. It's a brownstone. Well, it's not even a brownstone. It's like a tenement. It's like, it's, it, there's nope. some, it's not a, it's, a, oh, it is a brownstone with that rickety staircase. It was a private, it was a private house. I bet you that one year it was Andrew Jackson's home or something. It's, well, 14th Street was fashionable for like a couple of years and then it became like uh, whatever, tacky. And uh, then they turned this into rooming houses. Very, it was a rooming house by 1920. It was built in 1860. All right, take it easy. Save it for the New York City walking tour. <laughs> so I don't know if you know this, but uh, next week is the fifth anniversary of Dopey, and um, it's a big deal, right? It, How are we celebrating? Uh, it's just top secret celebration. I'm not, I'm not, oh, I'm not, I'm not okay. revealing that. I'll tell you. Uh, you know how we're celebrating. I'm not telling the audience, though. They'll find out next week. And it's okay. going to be a very anticlimactic reveal, audience, just so you know. But um, I'm feeling, like, pretty good about it. And it makes me, you know, you know, Ray was like, I hope we're not going to talk about some serious program shit. And I was like, we are going to talk about some serious program <laughs> shit. But in reality... Like I went to a meeting yesterday, right? And yeah. they're talking about step two in the meeting, how we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And person after person was kind of like, you know, sharing about God and gratitude and this and that and blah, 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 whatever. And then I kind of like was just remembering where I was at, you know, when I, you know, when I, you know, about five years ago and I was working my second step or whatever. And it was not like I came to believe it was like I forced myself to do it because I was so desperate to not use anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I I remember that, that you were like, I have to believe this stuff that I don't believe. I have to believe this stuff that I'm not really particularly comfortable with or it doesn't make me feel 
at home particularly, but I was like, fuck it. I need a way out. And that was dopey too in the beginning. It was just like I lived my whole life or I lived my adulthood using and I want to find some time uh, to get used to not being high. And dopey was the great like transition. Well, that was, it was, it's kind of like a form of meditation of like, despite what happens, no matter what happens, I'm going to do this every Friday. And right. you stuck to that in a way it was like a stabilizing force. It was totally a stabilizing force. And it was also just like, I, I, I thought it would be fun and, and it was fun and it is fun. And I thought it would yeah. be funny and it was funny and it is funny. And then it became part of my program and now I can say that a power greater than myself restored me to sanity, but I forced it to. And I, and, and like, it doesn't, it didn't wash up over me like water washing up on the sand in some beautiful, peaceful way. I was like, I need to do something or I'm going to, it's not going to work for me. You know, like, yeah, it's like a, a non-religious Jew who did you, you didn't go to service. Did you, you went twice a year. I went, Maybe once a year, but not even. I went like 15, right. I mean like 10 minutes a year or something. Right. Now I'm going to embrace this religion, which is kind of Christian, and and because I need to make it work. But it definitely was never a religion. But now, I mean, even in the beginning, like now I have a much more like spiritual practice or whatever, but I even feel uncomfortable saying that because like I'm comfortable doing nothing eating badly, watching TV, complaining. Like, that's my wheelhouse. That's where I feel, but like, that's where my old truest self lived. And now, like, like, I was doing really, I wasn't doing well the last few weeks. Like, I was in a lot of worry, and I was in a lot of fear, and I was in a lot of, like, thing. I wasn't feeling that good. And, like, I find that that, I mean, I don't get to watch my, my daily allowance of television, which should be, like, six hours a day. Like, it's way <laughs> down. But but I'm doing other stuff and it's making me feel better. And like, I don't know, like I feel like like I was talking to this dude, you know, um, this old school dopey listener named Randy. And Randy was the guy that took me and Chris out to the steak dinner. And he said that dopey got him clean. Right. And I, yeah. I love that. I can live on that. You know, some days when I feel down, all I have to do is think about that dopey got Randy clean. And there's quite uh, a few people that say that. I know. And Randy reached out to me and uh, he wanted to hear like how program worked for me. And I told him about like going to more meetings and I told him about really about having some kind of spiritual practice where basically every time you feel bad, you remember that you're not alone. That's the spiritual practice. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And uh, and then I asked him what he thought of the show. And um, he said he thinks the show is still good. And I asked him what he thought of you. And uh, he said he thought you were fantastic. Although when he watched DopeyCon 2, he thought you would be Spanish looking, first of all. And he, he thought you'd be like a hippie. He said he, he was hoping you would look like the double rainbow guy. That was, <laughs> that was what he, he was. He thought you would be like the double rainbow guy. And I just thought that was hysterical. That's hilarious. And, you know, I was surprised that people hadn't seen me before, that that was the first time people had seen me. I just assume everybody's on Dopey Nation Facebook, but they're not. They're not. And there were a lot of people throwing their virtual underpants at you through uh, <laughs> through the, the screen, right, Ray? A lot of women. A lot of virtual underpants getting thrown. <laughs> um, 
I had recently, like, um, I was going to quit. I, like, I had a bad experience at a meeting, and I decided I was going to quit with the sponsor and not well, hold quit. up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Yep. This is too good a story to not really, okay. really <clears throat> open the box. But before we open the box, I just want to tell you guys about BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp is the convenient way to get professional help from licensed therapists and counselors online. All of their counselors and therapists are licensed, trained, and highly experienced. They specialize in anxiety, depression, stress, trauma, and grief, and much more. BetterHelp matches you with a counselor who is best fit for your needs and objectives, and you'll connect in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, and if for some reason you don't like the counselor, you can switch. What did you use BetterHelp? How did BetterHelp help you, Ray? Um, I think it helped by just talking to somebody who was not a friend of mine, That um, and it was structured, or like, I know I'm going to speak to this person at this time on this day, and I, I can't really explain, but I'm glad that you are doing that to take some of the burden off of me. You should be you should be you should be grateful that you get to the, you get the the uncut anxiety from me. But if you guys want help, you go to BetterHelp. That's better h e l p dot com slash dopey podcast, and you save ten percent by joining over one million people who have taken charge of their mental health, including Mister Ray. BetterHelp helped me. So yes, check out BetterHelp.com. Use the Dopey Podcast thing to get 10% off. Now, Ray, what happened that made you so upset? Somebody at a meeting enraged me, and I sat there at the meeting just feeling rage and thinking, on oh, Monday when I call my sponsor, I'm going to say I'm done. And this, you know, I've, I have discovered, I have, like, by accident wound up in this, like, very extreme form of sponsorship that my sponsor that acknowledged that like this is extreme and it's extreme for me. And it's like, it's too much work. It's for the fourth step. It's like way more than anyone has ever done except for <laughs> this group. Well, Ray, Ray <laughs> it's, it's, fun, like, it's, it's funny. Cause Ray once was a freewheeling asshole eating crack, smoking, enriched vodka, drinking, freewheeling, non cult member. And now Ray is in a, a litany of cults. He's well, in, the, the cult of 12 step. He's in the cult of his sponsor. He's in the dopey cult, you know, not to mention Scientology. You're deep, <laughs> you're deep, deeply culted out. I've never been to Scientology. No, they tried, they tried to get me in the misfit tank. I wouldn't go in there. See, I, I always go to the misfit tank. I always, I always you get, go in. Oh yeah. I go right into the misfit tank. Dude, did I tell so you the story for Hanukkah? Linda, like, wanted to like get out there so she contacted the like local Lubavitcher and told them yeah. that we were Jewish and we're no. yes and we're sitting at dinner and um eating whatever and it was one of the nights of Hanukkah and the next thing you know there was like house music playing Hava Nagila outside it was like Hava Nagila house music and there was like a fucking siren going and shit they came to you like the bookmobile. Yes, and it had like a, a big light lit up menorah on the side, and this crusty old Lubavitcher gets out, and he's like, oh, and he sees Linda, and he's like, oh, are you Jewish? <laughs> she's <laughs> like, no. And, uh, and, and, then, and then she's like, Linda says to the guy, oh, this is, like, she was just in love with the whole idea of this rolling Jewish fucking van. And Did she, she go in too? No, we didn't go in. He gave us he gave us latkes. He gave us donuts. 
he gave Nora and Susan this really shitty kind of Hanukkah glasses that turns into a menorah thing. I didn't know they had food in there. Well, they don't. In New York, they don't have food. But I bet for Hanukkah they might. But this guy is like the roving Suffolk County Jew making sure Jews get to stay Jewish or whatever. And Linda goes... Oh my God, this is so amazing. She goes, I bet Dave would love to come with you and document what you're doing. And I was like, no. <laughs> it's like, no, I, I would not. I want to stay here. Linda, it's a cult. <laughs> right. Linda was very quick to volunteer me into the Lubavitcher, which was very, very, very uh, interesting. But I don't think she realizes how much that would impact her life if you joined. Wow. Either way, it was it was fucking funny, and I love the mitzvah tank. Uh, but why don't you share a little bit more of your own? Uh, and 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 everyone in the dopey nation who listens knows that when I used to wait tables on Friday, when the fucking uh, whoever they are, uh, God, I can't believe I can't think of the name. The Chabad would come in. The Chabad Lubavitcher would come in, or whoever they were. You know, this Hasidic. You know, these dudes would come into Katz's. And they basically walk around cats as asking people if they're Jewish and then give them some kind of Jewish artifact. And they, they would always come in and ask the owners to put on to fill in and they would ask the manager to put on to fill in. And every, they don't eat. They don't order anything. No, it's not kosher. Uh, and everybody hated them and would be like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I would always say, I'm not going to do it and I'm not going to do it until I got clean. And uh, when I got clean, I found I would wrap tefillin every Friday, literally. Every Friday they would come in, I would let them wrap tefillin. And in the beginning, it reminded me of tying off, like where I would shoot up because that's what it's like. Totally. Um, And then I – and all of the the Dominican guys would make fun of me and – I, and it was annoying and I would, people, you know, people, my customers would be waiting for me and I would be rapping to fill in while I was serving <laughs> in the, the busiest time of the day, you know? Yeah. Um, and would they get a ticket and then pay nothing when they left? I think they wouldn't even get a ticket cause they came every Friday. I think everybody was used oh. to them. Um, but, uh, I want to hear more about what happened with you Give us some of the specifics without revealing any names. I think it's a really interesting program for anybody around uh, 12-step Zoom. Um, I was – my sponsor asked me to stay for the business meeting, and he was going to nominate me for a service position. And then they voted in front of me. Quite a number of them voted against me, which enraged me. Bastards. <laughs> I shouldn't have been able to see, but um, then – the next week I started that position and somebody else started doing, taking over my job and I just got it raised. I was like, fuck this shit. And I was, I was already like overwhelmed with this step work and talking to this guy. And, and so I told him on Monday that I was going to quit that part of the thing of my program, my sponsorship is I have to go to this specific meeting with him. And I was like, I'm done. I'm done with this this whole thing, I'm 110% sure. And he's like, okay, your call. And I was like, wow, that he didn't fight that at all. That just proves that he hates me and doesn't want to work with me. And then I talked to another guy that he's sponsoring. And I was like, what the fuck? I'm sick of this shit. And I, we talked for like an hour and he like talked me out of it. And, uh, 
everything I was feeling, he had thought also, and he was overwhelmed by the work. It's like pages and pages, months and months and months of writing. And I was like, is it worth it? Did it really change? And he's like, totally. I, I it's, it, it totally changed my life. Took all those things out of my life, taught me a new way of thinking, taught me a new way of living. And, and, and it's very, it was very hard to do, but it was so worth it. And so I'm like, all right, I'm like 80% sure I'm going to quit. And now it's, Friday, I said, maybe by Saturday I will be ch changed my mind. And I have. So I'm just going to go and do my service work and uh, not worry about what everybody else is doing. Let me ask you this. Right? And then I'm going to get, I might get a few weeks off because I'm doing, I'm putting the cream on my face, which is going to disfigure me for like a month. And my sponsor says, we're going to have somebody fill in for you while you're while you're looking hideous. So that's God doing for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Yes. So Ray, Ray, explain that to the Dopey Nation. What's going on with your head? It's just, um, I've got skin cancer. I just, they keep, they keep burning and freezing it off and it keeps coming back. And they're like, the way you can really fix this is you put this cream on and it's very strong and it peels your whole layer of skin off. But in the meantime, you're like, a you look like a monster. You look like arm. Skeletor. Um, the question is though, Ray, or Skeletor, yeah. as I might want to call you in the future, um, you know, yes, he says that if you work your, your fourth step, this crazy thorough thing, and if anybody wasn't paying attention, Ray's been doing this fourth step for like eight months and he hasn't even done it yet. And, you know, he hasn't finished it. Um, but the question, yeah, when, when I'm done with the test writing, then I'm going to write an hour every day until nothing comes out. The other thing is that Ray's sponsor has Ray writing out his fears and he has him like to the point of Ray is totally fabricating fears. Ray's like, I'm scared of, I'm scared of getting convicted of a crime. I didn't commit. I'm scared of open spaces and, and my least favorite and Ray's decided this is real. He's scared of a rattlesnake coming up through his bathtub while he bathes. Right, right. That's and you know, years ago, I had a snake in my a snake got uh, into my apartment, but it's not based on that. Now the I asked my I, I, I asked the other guy that is being sponsored. I'm like, what the fuck does it? Me writing down, I have this stupid fear that's brand new, and he's like, when you write them down and then you put them whatever and you read them out, then they they're gone also. Are you ever like, I'm scared that someone's going to drop a piano on my head while I'm walking down the street, or I'm scared I'm going to like step no. into an open manhole? I'm scared of, um, I forgot the name of that, the thing that hangs off the edge of buildings on the top, the, the man, not mantle, the, whatever that thing is on old buildings, that thing falls off sometimes. You're scared of that. Is that on your list? I haven't, I haven't written it down. <laughs> are you, I mean, are you scared of food poisoning? Are you scared? No. Do you ever write down that you're scared that your husband is going to find out that you 69 cops on Viagra? Oh, my God. You didn't answer the question, Ray. Did you ever write down on your fears that you're scared that your husband will find out that you 69 police officers in the butt on Viagra? What? Wait, I thought we were going to take that out. No, I, I took the other thing out. This is it. <laughs> I didn't 69 with the cop. Okay, did you ever tell your tell your sponsor that you're scared that your husband will find out that you 69 
with the hipster in Brooklyn in the butt on Viagra? Uh, no, I'm not scared of that. Or, do you ever tell your sponsor that you're scared that your husband will find out that you slept with 3,500 people while you it, were married? While I was married? I think it was more than that. <laughs> so that's not on your fears list either. The real question, Ray, okay, before we move on to the interview of the week, the real yeah. question is, yes, uh, your your co-sponsee or whatever you want to call that dude and your sponsor believe that when you work a fifth step so thoroughly on this ridiculously thorough fourth step that these fears and um, resentments will go away forever. Um, do you feel like this process, because you... I mean, like, I like the fact that you don't count days, but I count your days, and I think you have uh, about 199 days today. So do you feel better than you felt 199 days ago? Um, 199? I made that I, up. I, 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 have no, I have no I, idea how many days you have. I'm just joking. Okay. I'm sorry. Wait, I, could, I know how many months. Nine. Nine months. So that's more like 270-something days. Are you a wizard? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Nine <laughs> There's months. There's 365 days in a year. All right, let me back this up. This is not my favorite kind of material. You know, people got really mad that I couldn't figure out the math of DB's clean time. That was hilarious. <laughs> it's like, you guys try to fucking record a podcast, worry about the sound levels, worry that it's interesting, and do math at the same time, and then tell me I'm a fucking idiot, Okay. You try to do it, like, live. Dude, I'm holding a mic in one hand, a speaker in the other. I got GarageBand going, Zoom, and I'm supposed to do math at the same time, plus come up with all these witty rejoinders. Right. Anyway, do you feel better than you felt nine months ago? Do you think this plan is working? Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, 100%. All right. Well, that's all I wanted to know. And today on the show, we had this guy that I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. He's a guy that uh, I met in treatment, that I came up yep. with in treatment. And uh, what, are you, what are you trying to say, Ray? I see you. you you're, you're, I'm you're, just thinking about Florida, that I want to go to Florida so bad. Well, I met him in Florida. He, his name is, is Bobby Altman. He's actually the son of a very, very, very famous movie director. Um, who's that? Robert Altman. <laughs> but lots of people won't know who he is, but he was a very, he did a uh, mash. He did Nashville. He did the player. He did, um, Prairie home companion. Yeah, he had a long career. Like that's a, that's long for a movie director. And Bobby was this wonderful guy that I met, uh, when I was in Renaissance in Delray and, and Bobby has his own storied career. He's a, a very, very, very accomplished director of photography, writer, um, photographer and, and just a wonderful guy. And, uh, and he, I met him like when I was trying to get sober, half trying to get sober and he was trying to get sober and, and, uh, and he tells us his story. Would you like to hear his story? Yes, I would. Excellent. I've already heard it. Shh. So hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave and uh, it's a thrill and a half. I have on the other end of the Zoom screen my old friend Bobby. How are you doing, Bobby? Oh, man, I'm doing good, you know? Um, it's really good to see you and to talk to you. 
and to be on this really dumb, cool, hot, adventurous, wild, crazy web, I mean, podcast. It's such a cool and adventurous podcast indeed. Hold on. I think I fucked something up already. Hold on. Hold on. Just take it. All right. That sounds good. Okay. Um, it's fucked up, Bobby, because first of all, Dopey Nation, you guys need to know that I met Bobby. He claims it was 2003. In my, in my imagination, it was 2001. I've lost time between 2001 and 2003. Well, your perception is skewed. You should call your sponsor, maybe. Yeah, I think you might be right. <laughs> but it, I, I know it was 2003 because I went into rehab at Renaissance in Delray Beach after going to Cottonwood in Arizona for 30 days, and I followed Malin and a bunch of people from there out to, you know, out to Renaissance, and it was three, four. 2003 was my was my sobriety date then. I remember Malin. I had forgotten about her. And you also came by with Sam, who's now a dopey producer. So, like, you're in good company. Yeah. yeah. And I remember um, I had been at Renaissance for at least a couple months by the time you got there. And they threw you in our group. And, and Bobby was, like, the chillest fucking dude in the world. And he had a, a great stoner sensibility and squinty, smiley eyes like I do. So we, we, we hit it off immediately. Um, yeah, we sure did, man. And, and Bobby also, you were, I think you were, were you coming off crystal, uh, meth at the time? Uh, well, I was 30 days sober by the time I saw you, so I was, uh, I was already cured, you know? I mean, <laughs> not really. My my therapist at Cottonwood said they had us do these timelines where you'd use a different pen for each drug that you used, a different colored pen, and do like a Richter scale thing. And he took one look, you know, from of your whole life, and he took one look at that and said, hey, uh, you know, I think you need to keep going to some more aftercare. This 30-day <laughs> wash dry thing ain't going to work for you. So, yeah, meth was my thing at that point. What did the yeah. what did the scale look like? Describe to us like what the diagram looked like, the chart with the colors. Well, it started like when I was zero years old, so it was flat line till I was about fourteen, and then a green one went way up for marijuana, and then some other colors came up like uh brown for mushrooms and yellow for lsd and then it, a little bit you know and then as i got in and then at 15 cocaine came up a little bit that was the white line and then it went all the way up you know then from 18 then at 18 they started to really start to go up and they were swirling around and then they were like between 20 and 40 they were like all over the place, you know? <laughs> and then they dropped down to nothing for one year. That was the first time I went to rehab, went to Michael's house in Palm Springs and almost got 11 months dry knuckling it. I didn't really, wasn't really ready, but I didn't know what I was doing. And then after that, they shot up like a giant volcano and colors are flying everywhere. And for, that was uh, for two years. And that's right before I came in and met you. I remember one of the first things, because, like, Bobby's, like, 
he comes from I'm going to get into his famous family and his artistic penchants for for glorious art but Bobby was like real wild spacey character when I met him and I was also a real wild spacey character and he talked about a, a meth like hallucination of flying turtles and he had the vision for the art no, vortex no, let me yeah, that's correct but let me get that let me let me get back to this low flying turtles were i um was smoking pot when i was in boarding school in canada and um sitting on a hill and these three low flying turtles came flying from <laughs> infinity right up to my face. And the middle one was the king, and he had all these necklaces and coins and stuff. And the other two were like flank turtles. They were like guards. And the king said, We'd like to ask you to be the ambassador between us and the human race. <laughs> and I said, Why me? And they said, because if you tell anyone about us, they're not going to believe you anyway, and that'll keep us safe from the human ext- humans extinction, you know, causing trouble to us. So I took the job on, and I, I'm still the ambassador to the low flying turtles, and uh, that's that story. <laughs> and, uh, art vortex, yeah. I think you're a great. I love and- art, and I feel like I'm in a. I feel like I'm in a vortex. Um, I think you're an amazing ambassador to the low flying turtles and an amazing art vortex representative. Uh, Bobby grew up in, in Southern California. His father was this ridiculously famous film director also named Robert. And it was Robert Altman, uh, maverick filmmaker and like, you know, deity of Hollywood, uh, when you first smoked weed, was weed... I mean, like, I remember you told me some story about smoking weed with your dad. So, like, how built in was well, weed? Now that you name-dropped and broke my anonymity, I'll just tell you the truth. I was rolling joints for my dad at 14. My dad loved to smoke pot after work. He never drank when he was working or smoked weed till the last shot of the of whatever day, whatever we were filming that day. And then the red cup would come out and the joint would come out a daily. So, you know, but I did roll joints for him. That's where I learned how to roll joints. Was he, was he real like, 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 was he strict with your joint rolling capacity? Like, was he like very judgmental if you didn't roll a nice, a nice doobie? (laughs) No, he was fine. He was fine. But let me tell you a story. When I was four, when I was, I don't know, 15 or something, he came in my room at Christmas and whipped out an Ameri- a joint rolled in an American flag paper. And he said, how about a Christmas toke? And I said, okay. And he said, and the conversation was, and the reason he did that was because he said, listen, I don't want you getting in trouble getting, I know you smoke pot and I don't want you getting in trouble by getting it from someone else or somewhere else. Just ask me. I just don't want you to get in trouble. And he lit it, and he started taking a hit off it, and then I couldn't get the joint from him. Like, he gave it, passed it once to me, and then he takes it back, and he gets so stoned he forgets to pass it, you know? Does he forget, or was he just selfish with sharing? With, he was like a, a bogarter of the joint. He wasn't a good passer. Maybe. Or maybe he was being a good dad and protecting you. A little you. bit of both. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, crazy. I, I was looking at your IMDb, IMDb page, and it said that you worked on Nashville 
as one of the assistant camera people in 1975. Was it a crazy, what was it like to be this kid, you know, with your son, with your father's name and, and, and growing up in that world? Was it a lot of pressure? Did it, did it make you nuts? Like, was it exciting? Yeah, it was all of those things. And the thing is, is I was 14 years old on my dad. I was all ready to go to a, back to summer camp. I had a girlfriend there, a horse, uh, trampolines, truth or dare, all that fun stuff at this summer camp that I had been going to every summer. And um, I was looking forward to it. And then my dad said, hey, will you come to Nashville? Because I never, he goes, I said, what's Nash? What's a Nashville? You know, he goes, well, we're making this movie in Nashville called Nashville. And I said, well, I can't go. I got, you know, why do you want me to go? He goes, because I never get to see you. And I said, well, that's your fault, not mine, because you're the one who's, you know, so busy working all the time. But anyway, I saw a tear in his eye, and I said, look, I'll go for two weeks, and if I don't like it, I can come back to the summer camp. Let's make that deal. And we shook hands on it. And so when I got to Nashville, I was there the first two weeks, and everyone's running around, guys with giant lights. Get out of the way. What do you think you are? A door or a window, you know, with cables, with, you know, just the equipment and the crews. Everyone's busting ass, working, all kinds of shit's going on. And I just feel like I'm getting in the way. And so that two weeks came up. And I said to him, I'm, now, I'm, now I can go to my dad and say, look, this isn't working out. I have some leverage, you know, like either give me something to do or I get to go back to that camp. That was a deal. But I couldn't get his attention. I couldn't find the moment to tell him this, you know. So in the middle of the Nashville airport, I jumped out in front of him and he was walking down with 30 people from the production with him. Um and I stopped and jumped out and I said, Dad, Dad, I got to talk to you. It's an emergency. And he's like, what, what, what's wrong? And I said, oh, I can't tell you here in front of all these people uh, here. And we, I, I let him into this little room. It was a video game room at the airport and they had a little pong game going. The thing was going. And I said, look, I can't just sit here and get in the way and have nothing to do and to be the director's son, you know, remember our deal, I want to go back. And he goes, wait, I got an idea. Uh, Follow me. And he takes me down. And then the 30 people follow us, and we go out through the emergency doors down onto the airfield. There's, like, the whole, the cameras and the whole scene that they're setting up to shoot. And takes me to the sound mixer, and the sound mixer is stands up a half a mile before we get there, and he's like, Bob, Bob, oh, yes, sure, anything you want, whatever you want. My dad's like, oh, well, can my son Bobby work in your department? He's like, yeah. Anyway, I don't. to make a long story short, they all left. Oh, we're about to roll, and boom, I turn, they're all gone, right? And now I'm standing there alone with this guy who ducks back down behind his machine with all his cables and stuff. So I stand there 10 minutes, and then I'm, like, thinking, what do I do? I'll ask him. Uh, so I said, hey, Jim, can I get you a Coke? He, he ducks back up. No, I'm a diabetic. <laughs> and he goes back down. I'm like, fuck this. So I turn, and I see this white truck with all these white cases coming off the back and going around behind it. But then I go, well, i got to do something here. It's been another 10 minutes, so I'll ask him a technical question. I'm like, oh, shit, but I don't know anything I don't know any technical questions, but let's see. Look at all those wires. Oh, yeah, look, one is red. So I take my finger, and I start to go towards the red wire, and I'm like, 
So what is this one? And he jumps up, cuts me off. Don't touch that. And everyone looks over like I did something wrong. And I jump back onto my mark. And I'm like, you know what? And he ducks back down. So I look back over at that truck, and these cases are coming off. So I, next thing I know, I'm over at that truck, and I'm behind the truck, and I'm looking, and those are all the cameras. And I'm like, hey, can you put any of these lenses on any of these different types of cameras over here? And they're like, yeah, kid, good question. And then they're like, <laughs> I go, can I fill out all these camera reports for you? Yeah, sure, kid. I filled out like a 1,000 camera reports with the name of the movie, the director, the cameraman, and all that kind of stuff. And they they taught me a bunch of stuff and I went home and I at back to the motel on location. I told my dad and he's like, okay, great. And the next day I go in and I'm now working in the camera department. I go in the truck and they're all frozen. And I'm like, what's wrong? You said the minute we get here, wherever the cameras go, we got to take the batteries and the filters and put them by each camera. Why aren't, why aren't you guys talking? They're like, but, uh, 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 and they're all like the whole camera crew standing there staring at me like, uh, 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 uh. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? And I go, spit it out, guys. What's up? Well, we thought you were just a little kid from around, from the neighborhood. We didn't know you were Robert Altman's son. Right. And I went, oh, is that all? That's your problem, guys. And I grabbed the filters and went, and I was off and running, and I have been ever since. So and you loved it. Did you story. Did you love it immediately, or or did it, was it something, you know, like I hear these stories, like I'm a crazy Howard Stern fan, and he always relates his story, which was that his father was a sound engineer, so to get his father's attention, he needed to be a performer on the radio. And did you feel like you better learn to like it so you can get your father's attention. No, nothing like that. I really did like it. I loved the chaos of it. I loved the insanity of it. I loved the free-flowing form of it all. And I liked, and I also liked being around my dad, you know, and I ended up working with him on most of his movies all the way up to DP and Operator. The last movie I did with him and his last movie was Prairie Home Companion where I was the A-camera operator. Um, and I was sober on that one. <laughs> I never, you know, when I'm we sober, <laughs> when we hung out in, in Delray, I never asked you anything about it because I didn't really care. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I just figured I wanted to be your friend and not really care about that shit. But I'm sure there are people in the Dopey Nation that find that fascinating. So I, we, I just want to, like, you know, insert a little Robert Altman trivia and also, like, I'm sure there's crazy pressure to be in that situation because a director is, like, in charge. There's a, a crazy, like, need for control, and then it's also your dad, and then you wound up, like, being this very hardcore drug addict. So I'm sure there is a connection between all those things, you know. I mean, my dad is a very mild-mannered teacher. I never wanted to teach anything. I stayed out of his way, and I became a terrible drug addict, too. So maybe there is no connection. Who knows? I forgot what a great therapist you are. I'm starting to feel better already. It's working. It's working. Yeah, I mean, I had to work 10 times harder than anybody else. I had to prove myself, and I couldn't fuck anything up because otherwise I'd hear the old thing, oh, yeah, we know how you got this job, nepotism, you know? But it made me good. It made me better than uh, than I probably would have been if I didn't have that hanging over me you know and and i love it and i've loved the creative part of it and um i just you know it's my life 
it's a crazy business. And if you're out there listening, don't, you know, jump into the film industry just because of what you heard from me, because it's a very unstable business and you never really know what, where your next job's coming from. And I grew up, you know, under the auspicious uh, reality of it's normal to smoke pot, drink as much as you can, show up with a hangover and work all day long until the lights, till the, it gets dark and you hear the neon lights and then, okay, well, let's go again, you know, that kind of thing. Totally, but not everybody in the film industry goes ballistic. So when did you start to notice your own addiction showing up? Like, when did you notice you doing stuff differently than other people around you? Um, I think I stayed pretty sane. I stayed at the same level as them all through the 80s. Because when I fit, when I got in the union at, at uh, 18 and I started working on other shows and other TV shows, I worked with a guy named Frank Flynn on a bunch of TV shows for like Knight Rider and all those kind of things, second units. And um, we... Um, and in cocaine, every that's when cocaine. Everyone was doing cocaine, and it was normal. And if you didn't do cocaine, you probably wouldn't get the job, you know. And then all of a sudden, in the '90s, boom, the the wall came down, and they're like, no drugs on the set, and, you know. And they all went and did it in their secret offices and stuff. But that's anyway. My perception skewed too. I'm gonna call my sponsor. I'll be right back. I yeah, love. He it. said it's okay. <laughs> You're good. I loved I love Night Rider and I saw you worked on the very very low key show that was a huge influence on my life Sidekicks. I loved Sidekicks. Sidekicks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um cuz I was yeah. that age at Sidekicks. But so when did you start noticing your use like being more than your people's use and how did you notice? Well, I guess what happened was I got tired of Cocaine was really good and euphoric up to a certain point in the early 90s. And then I think they started shipping it in from Mex from South America in dog cages and then remaking it back into cocaine. Something happened or they outlawed a chemical and it just wasn't the same thing. And, and it, plus I got tired of paying, you know, X amount of dollars for an eight ball and doing it in three seconds with my with my wife at the time. And. I just, uh, um, and then I was at a, uh, this is when it starts to go crazy because I was at a 4th of July party at, at the B at a campsite with my brother and we were make cooking this huge, like, you know, um, seafood bouillabaisse dinner. And then we had a whole, the trunk of the car was a full bar and I got so hungover. I got. We all got so drunk that the next morning I had to get to Panavision to prep a show, and I couldn't move. I was so sick, you know. And I talked to my dad. I mean, I told my brother. I go. I don't know if I can't make it. I gotta get to work. I was always made it to work, you know. And he goes, come here, follow me. And he knocked. We go to another trailer in the campsite. He knocks on the door. Hey, Fred, Joe, can you give uh, put a little of that white powder in my brother's Coke? He grabbed a Coke first, opened it, and the guy put a little, like a, I don't know, a match head of white powder into my Coca-Cola. I drank it. Three minutes later, my hangover was gone, and I was cured. And I, I wanted to know what that shit was from that point on, and that's when I found out about meth. And uh, that's when things started to go crazy in the mid-'90s. That's when it, or late-'90s, where it got really bad. 
I did go to um, Paris at one point to for a year with my dad to shoot stills on a show of his, and I didn't um, do any. Uh, I just I sw- there was no cocaine there, so we just drank as much as we could, and my addiction crossed to that, you know. Right, right. Well, and I, then I came back, and yeah. yeah. Well, our addiction will cross wherever we we can, wherever it has to go, it'll go. Um, it's interesting to me, and it, it must be very difficult because all the substances seem to have come in through work and family, you know? So it's like it, it gets set up in all of these, like, pseudo-positive places, and you know what I'm saying? Like like places where you have to be. You have to be at work. You have to be at family. That's where you discover weed with family, coke with work, and meth through work and your brother. When does it... Like, because I know for me, like when I started using, I could use casually, but then because I was, you know, a serious addict, I would have to figure out how to get it on my own. When did it become like, how, when did you have to figure out, like, how am I going to get this shit for myself? Well, meth, I never got at work. I got figured out how to get that myself. So I figured that myself because I don't know, I don't even remember the details, but I met a, I found somebody. And I never would buy it where I lived. I lived in Topanga. I would always go to, like, San Pedro to get it. I never got drugs near where I lived. I always went away, Um, you know, so I wouldn't have any issues. Um, Do you remember, Bobby? Coke. Bob, do you remember the first time that you had to, like, venture off for meth? Like, how old were you? What was the scenario? It was in the late mid mid to late nineties, and um, we had pagers back then. So I would call, I'd get to a payphone, and I would page my dealer, and he would call back and leave a voicemail on the pager or something. Anyway, like meet me at this guy bar in uh, Whittier, and I would then drive to that drive to that place and meet him and the next time it would be some I could write a book of all the different dive bars I went to to meet this guy to get the stuff because I had he was always at a different place all over the LA you know when did you notice like it wasn't going well like when did it become obvious to you that this was worse than you had expected it to be when I couldn't um yeah, when I started showing up late for work, when drugs became more important to me than work, when all I could think about were the drugs instead of anything else in my life, and then I didn't even care if I worked or not. I just wanted to keep going with the drugs, and that's all that mattered, and and that's what... Uh, then I wasn't working at all because of my reputation, because of the because all I cared about was getting the drugs, and then that's what led me into rehab where I met you. Well, um, what did your dad say when he, when he found out? Um, he wasn't happy about it. Um, but he was, uh, he was, um, aware of the problems. Um, especially cause I had an old, I have an old, older brother who, um, was the black sheep of the family. Then he got sober when I saw that happen to him, I was like, what the fuck? How did he became my Eskimo? Because I was like, how did your life go from like this to that? 
And he goes, well, I only tell people that ask me. And I said, I just asked you. I said, what's that pin on your shirt? And it was a circle with a triangle. He goes, oh, I only tell people that ask me. I go, I just asked you. He goes, oh, well, this is AA. So, uh, I, I remember when, when I met you, you were so positive, right? And you still are. I mean, like, I, I haven't seen Bobby in, in 20 years or something, you know, 17 years. Um, and, and obviously there's been ups and downs for both of us since then. Um, but when I met you, you were like a sponge for recovery. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like the spiritual aspect of recovery was so appealing to you. And I think that was, you know, we were tight, but I think one of the reasons we were, like, I I was thinking to myself, like me and Bobby didn't hang out as much as I, I, we could have. And it was probably because I wasn't such a sponge for spirituality or recovery. I was like still with my head in the, in the sand wanting to fuck around as much as possible. But I remember as soon as you got there, you were just like, lead me to a better place. Yeah. And when did it took the, it it took the drug, the addiction took me to such a dark, dark places. And my life was so awful that, once I realized there was a solution, I jumped on it, you know, and it took me a minute to figure it out. The steps looked like Chinese writing on the wall. All these people talking in these meetings weren't my kind of people and, and this and that, but I didn't care because I wanted to feel better and, and get my life back, you know, and so I just started doing what they said. I went to N.A. when I was there, and I'd go to the 7 a.m. Delray N.A. meeting every morning. Me too. clockwork. Yeah. yeah. The fucked up thing was that there was a clubhouse in Delray. And also, I want to get back to your bottom again, because I don't think I really understand why you needed to get treatment yet. But that clubhouse, right? You, there was, it was like a bunker in Delray with all the lost boys and girls sitting outside, like all these like good looking kids sitting outside. And to the left, you go and you go to AA. And to the right, you go to NA. And everyone in AA looked much better than everyone in NA. And I just assumed they were smoking pot in AA. And I, and I thought I wasn't allowed in AA because I wasn't allowed to smoke pot. But all the alcoholics were allowed to smoke weed. That was my, my belief. <laughs> ridiculous yeah yeah that was probably not true but i'll tell you na on the east coast or down in florida delray was was awesome you know and when i got back to la when i moved back to la it wasn't the same and i switched over to AA. but they weren't in AA in california they don't they considered alcohol as a drug so it's all the same thing you know totally um, when when you were in before you got to Cottonwood and before you got to Renaissance, like what was? How did you know that you were done? I mean, you obviously weren't exactly done, but how did you know that you that it was enough? Like, what was the like what was the lowest of the low for you? Um, I was in a uh, this guy had a little shed connected to a garage and he let me stay in his place when he was gone and he was gone for a few months and I couldn't be at my house. I was a mess. My life was totally fucked up and I had gone to like a really dangerous part of East LA and got an ounce of meth for a real discounted rate, risked my life doing all that. And, uh, and I was just, 
fucking gonna kill myself with it. You know, I was just too much. And I and my brother came there and twelve stubbed me. And so I went. That's how I got to Cottonwood um, because my family was worried about me. And uh, that's what that's what bounced me in there that time. And you were willing you know? to do it. You know what I mean? You didn't have to be willing at to do first, it. I said it. Yeah, at first I was like, fuck you, get out of here. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to continue lying to you and myself about everything. I'm fine. I don't have any problems. But then something happened and I just surrendered and gave And I said, fine, I'll do it. And I just surrendered. I didn't want to, but I, I didn't want to not be able to keep doing drugs but i surrendered and went in and when i got into these places i was like oh my god this is it this is god's here i can feel the energy you know what i mean i just felt spiritually on on a different path that was um where i was supposed to be no and i got that from you uh, in delray i mean i totally felt that from you you know and uh I remember we were in the same process group. Do you remember, like, this was something that was bothering me. Do you remember that dude, and this is probably going to go nowhere, but I'm just going to try anyway. There was a dude I think was in our process group. I think he was the son of a politician. His name was Andrew, and he died when we were there. Um, I don't know if he was in our group or not, but he was the first person that I knew well that died from drugs and he died from drugs in halfway. Do you remember that dude at all? I don't really know. Um, What's incredible was there wasn't even a major fentanyl thing back in those days and people were still dying even without it, you know, but uh, I don't remember that so much. I just remember you with your guitar and your smile. Well, you know, the theme song, the theme song of Dopey is the song I used to play at Renaissance, which is good. So bad. It's, uh, and, uh, um, so like you wound up putting time together after that, right? Yeah. Who's that? I did. Is that your brother? That's my brother. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's say that I, I'm going to cut that. Um, so, um, I put, so, yeah, I put time together after that, up uh, eight years, you know. And one other thing I want to say about Delray, I'd worked in the film industry all my life before that. I got there, they're like, you got to go get a, a recovery job. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And they're like, you got to just start here where the offices are and go to every establishment and hand a resume in from here till you get all the way down to the other end. And I did. And then I got Bed Bath & Beyond accepted me and I had to do a drug test. And I went and did that. And then I'm, I saw Ritz camera, Wolf camera. I was like, fuck, I'm a camera guy. That's what I want to do. And I walked into Wolf camera there. And there's my friend, Noel, who's a guy. He, Noel is also part of this pod. He's in Dopey Nation. He's going to hear this. He's a friend of mine. And he was I he was also in NA, and uh, I don't know if you saw my keychain. Anyway, I filled out my thing and I got a job there, and I started working and that was my recovery job because I was in Delray for like two years and I I became uh, you know I worked at Boynton Beach at the mall the 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 Ritz camera in the mall there which was a low end mall with a lot of old mall walkers and. 
all I would get was people, old ladies wanting their batteries changed or, you know, I would also learn how to print pictures. And then they moved me from there up to the, I ended up becoming like the top salesman in um, Boca Raton at Wolf Camera there. I managed the store. I had a whole other life going on at the same time. It was pretty wild. How was it? Like, so it sounds like you really enjoyed the sober job and the, the weird, like, old lady battery changing. And I know changing old ladies' batteries is code for something else, Bobby. You can, you can act shy about this. But uh, how was it? Because right. my sober job, my, I had three sober jobs there, right? I fucking, I worked at a flower store. With these old ladies who smoked Virginia Slims, and I would hang out with them and smoke Virginia Slims and and uh, and and uh, arrange flowers. And then I got a job at a radio station where I was like the engineer on a cardiology call-in show. And then I got a job at a furniture moving place, and I was like, "This fucking sucks." I was like, "I fucking hate yeah, this." That would be. It was the yeah. I did it with Sam, and I did it with Sam and this other dude, and we would drive around and move furniture. And I I remember in Delray, I lived in Halfway, and then there was some hippie at Seven Eleven who had like a fish keychain or some shit and I was like do you have bud and he was like yeah and and me getting weed in Delray was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me that was that was how I got through my experience in Delray um but for you you actually enjoyed being sober and working there what took you out of there yeah I mean for you getting that bud may not have been the best thing in the world but at any rate I was I was staying I kept my head in the in the solution. Um, I, did, I, I, I made the best of whatever was happening. I'm like, it was up to me if I want to be happy or not. So I want to be happy. So I'm going to go in and just um, have a good time and, and do a good job and appreciate it, you know. And I did enjoy it. I made the best of it. I also was shooting by owner commercials for this other guy that I met through the program, Pete Sassy, who ended up passing away from taking pain pills years later, um, which was really sad because they found him dead in his chair watching TV. And he was someone, whoever went to check on him thought he was fine and came back a few days later and he was still there. You know what I mean? They saw him there through the window and thought, oh, he's fine, but he was dead for several days before they found him. But that's that's where this, this addiction takes us. Um, but I So I had that going as well. I think I went and did a job with my dad in New York in between. But then I finally was like, it's time to get out of here, go back. I tra- I did everything the way you're supposed to. I got the full deposit back on the house we were renting, which never happened to me before. I... Um, had all this money and I only worked eight hours a day. I was used and was making minimum wage basically. And I had extra money and I had all my bills paid and everything was cleaned up. And so I found an apartment in Venice and paid for it up front. And I picked the date when we were going to go back. I transferred from Ritz camera or in, uh, in, in, in uh, Florida to Santa Monica, to the, to the Santa Monica mall um third street mall and uh and then when i went came back and they had a sunday beach meeting i'd go to a uh, on the beach off a of rose i was going there as a regular i got a sponsor 
down there. And um, when I went to work at Ritz Camera in Santa Monica, it was like a bunch of high school kids. It was completely a different story, you know what I mean? And so I quickly put in my resignation, but I did the two weeks that I promised I would do. And I started getting jobs operating on Boston Legal, and then I ended up on the OC, and then I became a second unit DP, and my whole life, all the promises came true. Doing all that work, I, we ended up adopting a baby who's now 14 years old. Uh, my whole life changed, bought a house, all the things that I, that I couldn't do because I didn't have the because of my addiction. Now, all of a sudden, they're all coming true for me. Like it says in the big book, in the you know about the promises. Well, all those promises came true for me. Yeah, it's and, amazing. Uh, that crazy. Yeah. But so what? Yeah, first of all, did your ego feel challenged when you're working in the camera store and your you know your dad is like one of the most famous successful directors in the world? You're a super successful DP. You're a super successful operator, and here you are working in this rinky-dink camera store. Did it fuck with your ego at all, or was the program so solid that you were like, "This is cool"? Yeah, if it fucked with my ego and I let my ego do whatever it wanted, I wouldn't have been there. I wouldn't have made it. So no, what? I did what the program said. I look at it like here's another. Uh, now I'm getting in a, new, a whole. I get to jump to a whole other timeline. I, I get to have two lives in one. You know, I was grateful for it, and I just that's how I. That's what I. Who I was. I just went out there and did what I Who I was now, and I. I don't know. Did the program reprogram me? Do they call it the program because they program or reprogram my brain? I don't know, but maybe so, but I'm glad whatever it is, that solution works. And I saw all those people at all those meetings, like telling me how fucked up their lives were and how, how much better and what it's like today. Now that they're in the program, I'm like, well, like if that's true, then it can be true for me, you know? And that's what I did. I just did what I was told. I did what I, and that's what I wanted to do. And I did it and I, and it works. The fucked up uh, thing, Bobby. the fucked up thing is that I never figured out that the program can reprogram you. That never even occurred to me until this moment. You just like blew my, my brain out of my mind. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, because we have, this subco- we have to reprogram our subconscious too because we have a lot of false belief systems that stifle us. We have a lot of dreams we can't reach because we have these, our subconscious is set with all these old fashioned things. So you, we need to, I need to, um, you know, go in and work on those things and reprogram my subconscious as well so that I can, um, create abundance and get whatever my dreams are, you know? And, and like one of my biggest dreams that in this now I'm on, I almost have a year, I'll have a year on February 11th. So I'm like at 11 months and one day today on my new, my new one. I got eight years out of Renaissance hold, when I knew you. Hold up, hold I, up, hold up. Yeah, you're, you're, jump, yeah. you're, you're jumping ahead too much. If, if the program reprogrammed Sorry. your conscious 
and your subconscious, and you had eight years, and now you have a year. What what, what happened? What happened, Bobby? Well, I didn't re- didn't reprogram my subconscious <laughs> back then. Uh, what happened was I have codependency issues, underlying issues. I'm a people pleaser, and I drifted from the program. That anchor you're supposed to put down with God on it, you know, and and anchor it into the program, came loose and. I drifted and my life got too busy and I was, I thought I, my disease tricked me and it said, hey, you know what, look, you bought a house, you have a baby, your career is back in full force, you're fine. You could probably have a drink. So one day we were going camping and my wife's like looking at different, romanticizing, looking at different kinds of wine and I'm like, I could probably have a glass of wine. Uh, no one will see me when we went camping. And my meetings had kind of slacked off a little bit. And they had slacked off, and I wasn't really accountable. And so I did that, and I didn't even have a hangover. And I was like, see, I'm fine. But that led me right back to where I was in a progressive way, 10 million times worse than before. And then I got sober. I went to Matrix outpatient. I got sober. For, and I got a couple years in there, but it was hard work. And being in the relationship I was with somebody that wasn't doing the program made it um, difficult for me. But that's not her fault. That's my problem. You know, I don't know. Um, I just fucking relapsed and then got so. Then I couldn't get any time. I got the two years, and then I relapsed again, then something else happened, then I. You know what I mean? And so by the time I hit 2020, February 11th, when I said the foxhole prayer and went in and uh, God, please help me and went into Sierra by the sea at Newport Beach because my insurance card was on Cobra and I texted it to somebody at Passages, a family friend, and they got me into that rehab and I went in. Um, So what was that? I'm like... Just, I'm really excited about this bout of recovery. Like, I, this is what I wanted to say. It becomes so much harder to get back in every time I, you go out. Every time I go out, it's ten times. It gets ten times worse, and it's ten times harder to get back in. Now, Bob, and this last time, I'm just fucking lucky that I got in. I think God gave me one more chance. I got that little grace, and I snuck through that revolving door somehow. Well, you got to live. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but this show is called Dopey on Drugs, Addiction, and Dumb Shit. And when I talked to Bobby the other day, he painted this picture in Atlanta smoking crack. And I said, no, no, no. I said, save it for the show, Bobby. So how did you wind up? How did it go from a, a nice glass of wine with your wife camping to relentless crack smoking in Atlanta before you made no, it no. back? Well, yeah. It went from wine and then back into full-on meth, 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 meth. Um, Then I did a job in Atlanta, and I was out there, and you can't get meth out there. And first of all, if you do meth, you you think people that do crack are stupid. And it is kind of a stupid drug because it wears off fast. But then I was looking at the benefits of doing crack instead of meth. It's like, wow, you can actually get really high and then... Stop when it runs out, you can actually sleep before you go to work the next day. Like my disease was having me rationalize all kinds of things. But I got in with the wrong crowd there. 
um, and I ended up, and I was smoking crack like a maniac with a bunch of crack with this girl, and it was out of control, like just nuts. Do you remember? I even had meth with. You had meth with you on the trip to Atlanta, and you were like, "Fuck it, I want to smoke crack with this crazy crackhead chick." Yeah. Um, do you remember? Like, what I think is interesting to me. Um, because I, I get everything you're saying, you know, I really do. And I feel like Bobby had me, uh, speak at a, at a meeting today, which was a great honor. And I made fun of people in AA as cult members and half the meeting was like, boo. (laughs) It was a little, it was a little sketchy for a second, but, but I, I'm with you a hundred percent. And it's like, I, 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 I'm terrified of losing what I've, what I've, Reclaimed, you know what I've claimed. Period, and I, I I want you to just for the listeners because I know we have we have a bunch of listeners who are in and out who uh, don't know how to go from here to there or don't know what to expect. Do you remember when you're going from sober in a program to the to the through the wine to the meth? Like, what was the transition like? Just nitty gritty style. Like, like was it like fuck it? I'm just gonna do this. Did you know what was coming, or did you think you could get away with it? Well, I'm really into day counting and chips and all that, and so like as soon as I knew I'd lost my time, it was like who gives a fuck, you know? Right. I could go do whatever I want for a day, and then I'll come back tomorrow and start over. And then tomorrow kept becoming tomorrow for like two years as I went worse and worse down the road into darkness. And, um, you know, the people in AA that knew me, they know they can't fucking do anything about it. They can't make me get sober again. I have to want to. So I had to get to the point of desperation that would let me, you know, want to get sober again, you know, but going the other way around, going from being, um, not sober to getting sober. I remember how it worked for me in, in 2003 with you. They said, you have to change everything. Well, I almost changed everything. I didn't get divorced and change my wife. That's the one thing. And even my therapists were like, you need to do that. And I didn't do it. I wouldn't do it. And, um, but I changed everything else. And, um, and it worked pretty good, but this time, I'm I, I'm changing everything. I am getting a divorce. I am, um, I'm I'm living up in a different part of California. I sold the house. I'm getting rid of the records in my past. I'm changing everything. You know what I mean? And I'm making my life, and I'm surrounding myself with people in the program that are actually doing the action. You know what I mean? I want to be involved in the program around people that are doing it so that I can be in the middle of this life raft while they're picking us off with uh, arrows. You know what I'm saying? Well, the beauty. And, and I just, cause I don't want to go, I don't want to go back either because I think if I, and plus I have a 14 year old daughter now, I need to be there for her and uh, I need to stay alive and I want to stay alive. And this is fucking fun, man. This is really fun. I mean, it may not be easy, and it takes action and it takes consistency. But if you can put, if I put passion into my program and I'm passionate about it, 
and I can be completely wide open and honest. That's why I'm like, yeah, Dave, let's talk. You know, I'm sober now and we can talk and you are too. Oh my fucking God. You know, here we are friends just like we were when we first met, you know? So I don't know. No, it's amazing. I have, I have an annoying question and then I have a not annoying question. Um, and oh, tell thank God you got one of these. Yeah. The annoying <laughs> question is, in my memory, and maybe this isn't a real memory, maybe I just made this up, when we were at Renaissance, Renaissance and I think it was, it might have been after I left or something, your dad went to visit you and wanted to smoke a joint with you when you were in treatment, and you were like, I'm in treatment, I can't smoke a joint. Was, is that a true story, or is that a fabrication of my brain? No, no, what, what you're off a little bit, he did smoke a joint in his hotel room, and I was out on the balcony with him, yeah. but he wasn't offering it to me. He was smoking it, and I, my program was solid, and I didn't even, first of all, pot, me and pot don't get along too well. If I did do smoke pot, if I smoked some pot, I'd have to get really drunk to deal with the anxiety that I would get from it. I go into a complete paranoid state. That's just what happens to me. Did he, but no, he didn't do anything like that, you know? Did he give you shit about having just, to work he, a program? Hell no. He just wasn't going to do anything like that himself. You know what I'm saying? Well, he didn't need to. I, I, yeah, I <laughs> he hear you. I hear you. He, you know, we were in family group and all that, and they did, like, he he admitted he was a working alcoholic and this and that, but he didn't, yeah. So he, he, he was proud of me, man. And I was sober with him when he died, and I was sober with him with my daughter at six months years old in the hospital when he died, um, and I was he was really proud of me. And it, I'm really grateful that I was sober when both my mom and my dad passed. I was like almost sober when my mom died. I, I was, my mom was was super dying of leukemia, which I think your dad died from too, right? Um, and well, he had a kidney cancer, yeah. Okay, then that's not what I thought. Um, but my mom was like high on Dilaudid um, because she was dying, and they gave her Dilaudid, and me and her had like a big laugh. Like, I was like, yeah, I used to I used to do that, you know. But I wasn't sober, yeah. but I wasn't, like, strung out or anything. Um, do you right. remember any real... I mean, like, you were a real good egg at Renaissance. Like, Renaissance beat the shit out of me. Do you remember that? Like, like how confrontational the style was and all that? Yeah, it was intense. It was insanely intense, and uh, it was scary, actually. They would have the McNally rallies every Sunday night at 7 p.m., and we'd have to go. Even in phase three, two, and three, we'd have to go. And I remember they put you in the hot seat. McNally would call out. But one thing McNally said, he would call you out or whatever they were doing. I don't know, but I remember he did say one thing. Most of you people really aren't addicts, you know, or something like that. And that got stuck in my mind. And then I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not a real addict, but I know I am. I know I am. It's so funny. This it's, is my solution. It's funny but, how yeah. all that stuff works. Um, it's such. I'm so like. How weird is it that we met back then, and now I have this weird uh, addiction podcast, and your friend even knew about it before I told you about it. Isn't that crazy? And you know what's really funny? Noel, the guy from Ritz Camera or Wolf Camera, he um, he's the one. He told me about Dopey Dopey podcast. Did you tell him before you were I even like, knew it was you? I know. Did you tell him that you we were talking? 
I did after, yeah. And then he said he talked to you about it as well, but yeah. <laughs> Dude, that guy is connected. He was connected to my old sponsor too. It's just a weird, a weird thing. Um, yeah. Now, before we go, can you lay down a crazy drug story, or as we like to call it, dopey story, a misadventure around drugs? I'll tell you one that is where I met my guardian angel, okay? So I went down, I left Venice and drove east on the 10 freeway at around 1 in the afternoon and went past there to East L.A. to Chuco's house to pick up an ounce of meth. This was back in the late 90s. And I came back. I didn't have any money because I spent it all on this thing, on the ounce of meth. And I drove back, and then I was in a Jeep Grand Wagoneer, and I thought, hmm, something pulled me into going towards I got off the freeway and went to downtown, into the downtown area. And I was just driving around and I was tripping out on the homeless people down there. And I was like, and I pulled over and I was talking to one of them who was talking to themselves and had 500 people talking to them that weren't even there and all kinds of crazy shit. And I'm like, I gotta get out of here. So I start to drive out, but I see something else so I don't go on the on-ramp. And then I'm doing this circle and then I look at the gas, I'm going around and around. I can't get back on the freeway. Some kind of vortex is pulling me down into this dark part of the city where all the homeless people are and stuff and my my um, imagination, whatever. But I uh, looked at the gas gauge and I'm about to, okay, I almost, okay, I'm going to get on the on-ramp and I'm going to go. I hit the gas and I realize I'm going to run out of gas. So I go back around, pull into a gas station. I don't have any money to put gas in the thing. The sun's starting to set. So I, um, I, uh, reach down and dig between the seats and search the whole car and come up with like 85 cents or something. I put it in the gas tank and I go, that's it. I'm out of here. <laughs> I go around again and I go, there's the on-ramp and it goes up. So I, I hit the gas and I'm going to go as fast as I can straight up that on-ramp to be able to break through the vortex and go through and hit the freeway, which will then take me all the way to the beach back to Venice. But I see this guy hitchhiking with long, blonde, curly hair. He's like 25 years old. And I'm like, what is an idiot like that doing in this neighborhood hitchhiking? And this huge voice from behind me says, why don't you stop and ask him if I, and then I, he, yeah, why don't you stop and ask him first before you decide? Basically, he had his thumb out. I'm like, I'd pick him up, but he, he might be an axe murderer. How do I know he's not going to kill me? And then this voice said, why don't you stop and ask him before you make a decision? Which to me was God, right? And uh, before I, without even realizing I stopped, the window's down, I'm stopped, and I'm like, yeah, what do you, you need a ride? He goes, yeah. And I go, okay, just get in. <laughs> Where are you going? That way. <laughs> and I said, just get in. But you could be an axe murderer. I hope you're not an axe murderer. He gets in, and we start to drive up onto the freeway, and two semi-trucks. I get up to the freeway, and two semi-trucks were conked out, and the whole freeway was blocked out. So I think if I would have kept driving fast and didn't see that guy, I probably would have gone right into those things and died, right? So anyway... We're now the freeway opens up immediately, uh, like magic, and now we're driving. And he says, "Do you have?" I said, "So what are you doing?" He goes, "I'm starting to be a high priest, and I'm doing my work." 
And he goes, and there's a bus strike, and there was a bus strike, and that's why he was hitchhiking. And I said, oh, okay. And then we're driving along. And then he says, so do you have a relationship with God? And I said, well, I have had one because I was in AA, because of AA. And he goes, oh, are you sober now? Now, if anyone ever asked me at that period if I was sober, I would lie and say, yes, I'm sober. And I could not lie in front of this guy. The word yes wouldn't come out of my mouth, so I had nothing else to say but the truth. And I said, no, I'm not. He goes, hold on a second. He looks up for quite a while, and we're getting now past the 405 heading towards the beach. And he comes back to me and he says, listen, you will get sober again, but this time, when you do, get rid of everything you don't need. And I went, Oh, okay. And then he goes, there's my exit if you pull off here. And so I pull off and I roll to a stop and there's a huge park to the right. He gets out. I said, all right, thanks. Good luck. He's like, okay. And he walks away and I I see him walking towards the middle of the park and I look back straight ahead and then I look back instantly and he's, there's nobody there. And I'm like, shit. And anyway, I get back to my apartment in Venice, and my friend Jessie was on the computer looking up. She's like, I found this really cool astrology astrology website. And I go, oh, do mine. And she looks mine up, and the thing said, today you will meet your guardian angel by helping him. Wow. Holy shit. So anyway. And then you smoked the When I got into Cottonwood, (laughs) I remembered all that shit, and I remember they said... Get rid of everything you don't need, which is all that baggage, what all that therapy's for, you know, get rid of all that stuff. So anyway. Wow. That's far there out. You, you are you are the mystical, loving, squinty eyed, beautiful person that I've always remembered. And uh I appreciate you coming on. Do you feel comfortable having bared your soul to the dopey nation? Yeah, just kind of remember my anonymity out there and keep me keep me in check, keep me safe. I don't want to lose any jobs because people find out I'm part of your nation. But you know what? I am part of your nation, and I don't give a fuck, so let's go. Let's get sober. And whoever isn't sober and is listening to this and wants to get sober, you got to reach out and ask for help. Ask us, do it. We can show you what we did, and we can. you don't have to do it alone. But come on, man, this fentanyl thing is going to kill everybody if we don't get our hands, to, our heads together, you know? we. I want you all, Who I want you guys to have a good life like I'm getting again. And it's right here in the program. So, you know, I love you all. Oh, that's very thank nice, you. Bobby. Uh, dude, thank you so much for coming on. So that was the great Bobby Altman, who I love. And, um, you know, it's funny. I think he reminds me a little bit of you, which is funny. You said that. You said his voice reminds me of you, me of him? You guys have this both kind of serene, spaced out quality that I like. I, You know, people have said that about me before. I was like, I'm serene? I, I, don't, I don't think that about myself. You're simultaneously serene and spaced out. <laughs> I laughed so much during his interview. I found him very amusing. I thought his his voice was was funny and the stories he told. I laughed out loud quite a few times. Well, that's good. That's what we want. We we like it when you laugh. Um, this thing happened last week. It was really kind of it, it left this weird taste in my mouth where um, yeah. the fucking cat uh, sprayed the bed again. Okay. Oh no. 
So I had to take the pillow top back to the laundromat, right? And um, It doesn't get into the mattress. It did a little bit. We had to clean the mattress and, you know, it's all... And we have the nice memory foam mattress, so it's like a little oh. like... it's. But only one time the cat has sprayed. I think since we've talked about it, I think just one time. And uh, so I, I bring... I, I take Susan and we go to bring the pillow top to the laundromat. And I think I revealed on the show that the bitches at the laundromat fucking hate me. Yeah. Because they hate I, everyone. Well, but I ratted them out to their owner, so they or to, to the laundromat owner, so they really hate me. And they're nice to me because they know that I talked shit about them. They're not nice to me out of the goodness of my heart, you know? So right. uh but they, they did give me free detergent, which was great. So they oh. gave me they gave me free detergent and I put the pillow top in and me and me and Susan go to the pet store and then we go back and there's a different person at the laundromat, okay? And um, and I'm putting the pillow top thing in the dryer, and the woman looks at Susan, okay, and she says, oh, my God, what a beautiful child. You know, and Susan is a very beautiful child. Yeah. And she says, what a, what a beautiful child. And I say, thank you, you know, whatever. And she says, you're going to have to look out for that one. And it's like, it's like, what a disgusting comment. Gross. It's just, but people say that. It's like, if you have a beautiful baby, you're going to, a two year old, you you better be careful when they're 20, when they're 16. What the fuck is that? It's like, they're talking about the two year old having sex. Right. It's like, what the fuck? It's like. You don't know how someone's going to turn out at two if they're going to be like, and, and like, why are you ha- planting the seeds in my head that I need to look out for people wanting to have sex with my two year old? It's just the right. worst, just a disgusting, <laughs> right. disgusting thing. And people say that all the time. It's like that's passable somehow that they they say you, they see your child and they say, oh, better look out for that one. It's like, what? It's terrible. I hate that. I never thought about that. I've never heard that before. No, they said they said it to me when Nora was little too. It's like just shut up. It's, it's gross. Crazy. Um, but the funny thing was was that around the same day, me and Ray were talking about. Uh, Ray was talking about porn, and uh, he was telling me that, that he he his sponsor. This is going to be called Bobby Altman and Ray's sponsor. Um, <laughs> fucking his sponsor was like, we have to do your sex inventory soon. And Ray was like, oh yeah, well I'm watching this porn, this halfway house porn. You, why don't you tell, why don't you break it down, Ray? Well, I, he said, we're going to do sex inventory. And I was like, you know what? I've never done anything wrong. I've never treated anybody wrong. I don't feel bad about my sex life. I don't want to feel bad about it. And I don't want to manipulate it around to like 1939 AAs, like uh, uh, thoughts about sex life. And well, what we're really uh, saying think- is that out of the five over out of out of over five thousand people that Ray has had sex with, that he has not treated any of them badly. So he's oh and five thousand of. Uh, of misstepping sexually. So I want to commend you on that in itself, right? I think, I think that's really good. <laughs> well, I, he said like, there's maybe there's some questionable porn that you've watched. And I'm like, <clears throat> I'm like, that's true. I've, <laughs> I've watched some porn. Like maybe the people in it were not thrilled to be like addicted to drugs and then like being in like degrading porn. And you know, you're right about that. And he's like, and what about the guy that you pissed on? And I'm like, well, he wanted to be pissed on. 
this is a theoretical guy. Like he wanted to be pissed on, and every there was a bunch of people pissing on him at the same time. So I don't think I did anything wrong there. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm from the Midwest, but I know about these things. <laughs> but the, but <laughs> what the, does that mean? But the question is, Ray, why don't you tell the Dopey Nation about this new porn subculture that you've gotten into? Well, it's not a sub. It's a porn site. It's like the halfway house and the guys are staying at the halfway house. And if they fuck up by like they'll find a joint or they'll have like they'll come back and they will have drank. So the way they get punished is they have to suck the counselor's dick. So it's like POV porn. It's the ultimate <laughs> gay dopey porn. You're in you're in halfway. And if you if you're naughty, uh, then you have to like take care of the the house master. Yeah. Whatever it is. But I told my sponsor about this and he's like, wait, is this real? I'm like, no, they're actors. It's porn. But do you know they're all addicted to drugs anyway? You know, that's and then and then his sponsor said you need to make sure that the porn you're watching doesn't have addicts in it, right? Didn't he say that? Yeah, that it's like it's whatever. It's PC porn, it's I don't know. And I was like, Well, what about amateur porn? Like they chose to do that themselves and he's like well, maybe because they were high. There's porn where people are slant, so shooting crystal meth and then having sex and constantly shooting. It. It's like, that's on Pornhub. That's like pretty mainstream. Well, basically, so you're looking for, it's like certified grass-fed cattle or something. So exactly. You, so you're looking organic. for certified organic porn where none of the actors Vegan. were high or using any of the money that they made uh, to get drugs. That's and, and like they were treated well. They were like well, humanely treated. Pornography is what your yes. sponsor is insisting you watch, not this halfway house shenanigans. Yeah. Um, but there is no way to prove that pornography is made uh, morally highfalutin, moralistic pornography. I don't think. Um, no, it's all bad. Dopey Nation, uh, have you gotten into any kind of weird uh, pornography shenanigans to get drugs? Uh, if you have, write an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. We would love Send to hear that story. Video. Send Ray the video, especially if it's like a halfway house scenario. Um, I mean, that would be fucked up. Like, that would be like the worst halfway house in the world if, like, they were like, they didn't want to get jobs. That would be a great porno. If they are in a halfway house and they didn't want to get sober jobs, so they decide they're going to put out the halfway house porn. Like as their as their their like their job, you know what I mean? It's like it's like if you had a halfway house on a farm and they just grow vegetables and sell the vegetables, but in this case they're making porn. They're doing chatterbait. I don't know what that is. What is that? A uh, chatterbait is where in your own home, the day you turn eighteen, you can make a huge decision to put a camera on yourself and jerk off or have sex. And then broadcast that out to the world to make like fifty dollars. Well, no, but it's, this is, I'm not talking about chatterbait. I'm talking about a, a fully fledged studio within a halfway house in order to fund the halfway house and to keep to keep the members of the halfway house from doing a stupid recovery job like the ones I talked about with Bobby. Sounds like a recipe for trouble. That that job he did that I couldn't believe that he's like this like big time like uh, photographer. Uh, um, filmmaker and now he's working at the mall and then he worked at another mall but it saved him well it saved him and he's doing well now which is all that really counts now i've got a voicemail and an email which are you dying to hear first let's hear the voicemail all right let's hear the voicemail hey what's up dave this is uh 
Jason Kratom from Twitter. I hit you up on there sometimes. Um, my real name is John, and uh, I'm a wicked big fan of the show, dude. I love what you do, and um, I also have a recovery meme page. We got like 10K on Facebook, 2K on uh, Insta, and I wanted to drop a little dopey story on you. I've been meaning to call you for like the last six months and give you a story, but I've been putting it off, but I heard you put out the call last week. So uh, I was listening to a, an earlier episode, uh, and I remember you, Chris, and I think Ryan talking about how, you know, you could be in different states of, you know, wanting it or being fucked up before rehab, and you never know when it's really going to stick. So I'll give you my... Uh, my story of my last rehab. Um, that year I had found some recovery for a little bit. I had six months, but I ended up fucking it up. And then after that, I was going through, you know, I was doing the shuffle where, you know, I would use for a week and then, you know, go to detox and then, you know, be clean for two weeks and then fuck up again. And I was, you know, I was freaking out with sobriety so much that even though I wasn't using dope, I would be using, you know what it's like, Dave, I'd be using benzos and I'd be smoking weed and, you know, I'd be taking Kratom to deal with the withdrawals. And, you know, I had ordered this uh, big bunch of benzos from an online vendor for research chemical vendor, uh, research chemical benzos. And um, I put a big order with this guy and he sends me like this absolute fucking Skittle pack of every different kind of, you know, research chemical benzos. I, I wish Chris was here. He would know what these are. This is uh, Etizolam, Clonazolam, Diclazepam, Flubromazolam, every man. And, um, you know, I got this pack and I, I knew it was going to be trouble. And <laughs> I can remember before I taken the first pill, I, I said this prayer to God. I was like, just don't let this end in catastrophe don't let me pick up dope and the next thing i know i i was waking up in the hospital i just overdosed um this time you know it was at my parents house and when they came home they were the ones that had to respond to it so it was really ugly and you know the doctors there trying to get me to go into treatment they're blaming all the you know public detoxes i usually go to and i'm i don't really want to go but they tell me that Recovery Center of, Centers of America is taking MassHealth, my insurance, and um, this was the first nice rehab I had had the opportunity to go to. It was in a hotel and all that, and I, I'm always down for a new experience. So I said, yeah, I'll go, but I have to go home first and pack a bag of clothes. That's my one turn. But of course, what I really want to do is go get the rest of those benzos. So. I go back to my house. My parents already know that this sounds fucking suspect. And um, they're watching me, you know, pack my clothes to make sure I'm not doing anything. And for a quick minute, they don't watch me. I take all the rest of the benzos and I stuff them in my ass. I'm fucking hooping the benzos, you know what I mean? And um, I'm also eating, like, you know, good amounts while I'm doing it. So I show up to rehab and I'm in fucking rare form. I'm all fucking booted up and, you know... I start handing them out to other people, and you know, before you know it, the fucking whole unit is fucking barred out. And you know, eventually some of the staff starts noticing, and they're like, what's going on? I'm like, uh, I don't know, you guys must have just whipped up a mean batch of Ativan. And uh, you know, it's not looking good. So I get the, the idea that I should get rid of the rest of my stash. 
And instead of flushing it down the toilet, I decide probably be a good idea to eat the rest of it. And then, you know, the next thing I know, I'm in and out of consciousness and I'm opening up a door that has all these red stop signs on it and the fire alarm's going off. And bam, I black out. The next thing I know, I'm in the hospital. I got all these fucking, you know, tubes to my arm and fucking the doctors are like, dude, we didn't know what was going on. We thought you were brain dead. We had been trying everything. We've been giving you tests. We gave you, you know, a CAT scan. We were going to give you an MRI. And um, they can't figure out what was wrong with me. And I was just like slurring my words. I'm like, I'm just fucked up. I'm just barred out. And they're like, barred out? I'm like, Xanax, Benzos. And they're looking at each other like, oh, oh, okay. And I'm like, yeah. Um, so you, can you guys give me some ice cream? And they're looking at each other and they're all bewildered. And they're like, yeah, I guess so. So I'm just sitting in my hospital room getting coffee, ice cream cups bringing to me. And I'm like, you know, this is pretty good. This, is, this might be my new life. I'll stay in this hospital and eat ice cream. And eventually, though, it's been a long time since my last uh, bit of uh, dope. And I'm starting to feel a little sick. And, um, you know, I'm like, guys, there's something else you don't know about me. I'm also a raging heroin addict. And, you know, you guys are going to have to give me something for it. And so they come back and they, they hand me one pill. And I'm like, what's this? And they're like a clonidine. And I was like, all right, you know, it's been real, guys. But it's, it, it's time to bring me back to rehab because, you know, Johnny's going to need some methadone. And, um, you know, I don't even know what rehab. I don't even know what town I'm in. I don't even know if I'm still in Massachusetts. I just tell them to call Recovery Centers of America. Eventually, they're like, all right, the van's coming. Get dressed. The only thing is, I don't have any clothes. I don't have any shoes. So I'm in the fucking hospital, Johnny's. No shoes, fucking walking in the snow. And, you know, it starts to hit me like, you know, I'm in the place where everybody's fucked up and I'm still the most fucked up. I'm still the most chaotic. And that, you know, I better really give this thing a shot and take take this opportunity. And that's what I did. I, I, I went back and I did it legit. And uh, I've been staying in a sober living since then. First time I did sober living. And uh, on January 25th, I'll have a, a year of sobriety. And, you know, your show, man, your show helped me so much get through it. With COVID, man, when they, the meetings were shut down, you know, I was doing my cleaning job with my headphones on, listening to episodes of Dopey, three or four at a time. And, you know, you guys helped me so much, man. You know, we say, you know, Dopey can't, you know, replace a meeting, but there were periods where I wasn't going to any meetings. And I'd be talking to, you know, older people in the program, and they'd be like, you know what, kid, I you're getting this I think you got a shot at this and like I'd be like I'm just doing what uh, Dave and Chris told me to do on Dopey you know I'm just listening to what you guys did and I'm so I'm so proud of you man how you kept the show going and I miss Chris so much I I, I love Chris I get choked up when when I hear stuff about Chris because I miss him like you know I miss my friends that are gone and uh, you've just done such a great job and um Ray, you're fucking awesome, man. You, you've you uh, added so much to the show. And, you know, think about when, you know, you were in that hotel, brother, and you said you didn't think you would ever get out of there. I fucking know what it's like to not be able to, thinking I might not make it out of somewhere. And, you know, you're killing it now. And you might be on your four-step for the rest of your life, but that's all right, kid. 
Um, thank you so much, guys. Dopey Nation, stay strong. Peace and love for Todd. Toodles. So that's John, a.k.a. Jason Kratom, and he's also the meme page on Instagram, Users Lose Drugs, and on Facebook, which is also Users Lose Drugs. So check those out. I love that voicemail. What do you think, Ray? That was that was hilarious. Dave and I were laughing. He's like a he's like a human Pez dispenser. Yes, he was like a human but, Pez dispenser. But wait, he must have put them in plastic because then they would have like shit. They would have gone into his body. He had some sort of device. He had something in place. But that is a a perfect voicemail, and it obviously um, it makes me feel like a lot of emotions just around like that. The show reaches people. Like I honestly, I say this all the time, but I honestly like. I'm touched whenever I hear that anybody is actually listens to the show and gets something out of it. I know it seems as though I should think that everybody listens to it and loves it, but in my mind, like we're just doing it, you know what I mean? And it's like, whatever, you know, it's like, it doesn't re- it never penetrates me how much people get out of it. So, and when he mentions Todd and Chris, like it definitely gets me choked up. Um, Surprised that people listen to it. I know, me too. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other. That's a whole other thing. Before we go, I want to. I I promised that I was gonna touch on Reddit, and there was this weird thing from Reddit from Christmas, and I and I forgot to touch on it, and I want to talk about it. Right? It's from Reddit superstar. And are you on Dopey Reddit, Ray? Yes, I am. So I, I just had to turn off notifications because I was getting notifications from Reddit. Right. Well. Fucking Dopey Reddit needs some support. And I know that Dopey Facebook has some weird fake beef with Dopey Reddit. But I love Dopey Reddit. And they need some support. And this is from a Dopey Reddit superstar. Upstate New York engineer. Okay? And he's done some great stuff that was... Reddit is sometimes way too controversial for even Dopey the show. New York engineer did some shit that I wanted to talk about that I didn't talk about on the show. But I'm going to read this thing. Are you ready? It's very controversial. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Merry Christmas, I Don't Want to Fight Tonight. And he says, Hi, as much as I respect this podcast and the consistent work Dave has done through dark, dark times, I personally cannot escape the fact that this has turned into a shopping mall for rehab. What if you don't subscribe to being happy, joyous, and free? There is a GNM, there is a geometric theory called oblique projection where in a 2D drawing there appears to be right angles even though the true angles on the paper are acute or obtuse giving the illusion of a third dimension. And if this sounds like I am trying to sound smart, believe me, it took a full hour for my tiny brains to fully absorb the math regarding this concept. My point is this. How much can we truly trick ourselves into observing something that we know isn't really there? The vast majority of the population would never begin to consider putting needles in their arms to feel better. Chris tested this theory and obviously arrived at his conclusion. I think about that a lot. I want you all to live. I also want to know the truth. I want to know why. Right. Well, Merry Christmas, upstate New York engineer. What do you think about that? Oblique projections. Wasn't that an album by Eno? I don't even know. No, I, I have no clue. I have, I have no idea. I'm, the question is I'm this. I'm looking at it right now. I'm looking at the at the drawing of the of the cube. Well, but the question is this. Is Upstate New York Engineer questioning the ability to be happy, joyous, and free in sobriety? Is that the gist that you got from that, Ray? 
Yeah, why not? Yeah, question everything. But do you think he's questioning people's ability to get happy, joyous, and free in recovery? I, I think he's saying not everybody uh, has to do that or has the ability to do that, and that doesn't mean they're not off of drugs. Well, listen, we said from the very beginning of the show that you don't have to be off of drugs to enjoy Dopey. What I'm saying now is having lost you know, a, a, a long list of people to drugs who I saw some of them be happy, joyous, and free in their recovery only to return. I was spacing out a, I was spacing out a little while you were talking, and I was looking up oblique projections, so I didn't, maybe I didn't hear it correctly. I think he was, what I thought was, He's saying just because you're off of drugs and you fixed that part of your life doesn't mean you have to be like, la, 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 and I'm so happy. You can still be like angry and whatever, but you fixed the problem, and that's fine. I think he doesn't believe it's possible to be happy, joyous, and free off drugs. Or, or he anyone. does. And I think what I'm trying to say is, I, you know, I'm not happy, joyous, and free all the time. But I'm happy. I'm way happier, way more joyous, and way more free. I have the potential to do what I want. The only thing I wanted to do before now was get high, and in the and it's like if getting high satisfied me, I wouldn't got I wouldn't have gotten sober. And if getting high is eternal and everlasting, and you don't need more drugs, and you don't need more money, and you don't need to work, and drugs could actually work eternally, I don't think I would be in recovery. But the, right, but right. the drugs didn't work, and I find that the recovery does. And 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 like so, upstate New York engineer, you know, if you don't want to get clean, that's fine. Let your freak flag fly, man. Anybody should they should everybody should do whatever the fuck they want. If you want to get high, you should get high. I find I'm not hungover at work and like dying at 1 p.m. and just like it, it, I'm not hungover at work. That's one thing I. You don't even um, work though anymore. Well, when I was working, <laughs> it's like it's a it's a lot better to go in after not drinking and do physical labor. I remember hiding. I would hide in a closet. But dude, for the for, but for the nine months that you've been clean and sober now you have not done any work whatsoever do you feel no. more happy joyous and free or less i'm i'm more all right great that was great ray thank thanks for that <laughs> um anyway you guys should do whatever the fuck you want I, i'm just i think it's worth reading that let's thank the great cormac for pioneering our reddit land and um you know he's i love reddit i like reddit in general well there you go so uh, look for Ray on Dopey Reddit. Everybody get on Dopey Reddit. Jump in the pool. The water's fine. Upstate New York engineer, we love you no matter what. Uh, Ray, you want to take us out? Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Fucking toodles for Chris. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much did you enjoy doing this show? <laughs> we had some technical difficulties. Aside from I'd that. Enjoyed, I'd say 10 because it's it's before noon. It's not... Midnight. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Stay strong, Dopey Reddit. Stay strong, New York Upstate Engineer. And uh, and fucking toodles for Chris and everybody else.